Hello and welcome to another edition of Insurance Insights, which is Browse McDowell's uh, podcast series on all things insurance. I am Jody Spencer Johnson. I'm one of the insurance coverage attorneys here at Browse, sitting in the Cleveland office. I'm joined here today with by Elizabeth Hankey, who is vice president of KCIC, a consulting firm specializing in products liability and support along with related insurance coverage support. You are listening to the third installment of our podcast series on the next asbestos, which we have said is asbestos. We have been discussing the claims trends that KCIC has been uh, tracking and uh, issuing issued in its most recent report on asbestos trends, which is available on their website. Last time we talked about the changing look of defendants. Today we are gonna move on to the changing look on the plaintiff side. So I am gonna turn it over to Elizabeth to walk us through that trend. Thank you, Jody. Um, yeah, so in our report this year, we dug, we dug in a little bit deeper on um, the secondary exposures and different kinds of plaintiffs that we're seeing and sort of looking at to why that might be. So one of the things is about claims alleging secondary exposure and non-occupational exposure. So what I mean by that nomenclature is secondary exposure means the claimant was not directly exposed to an asbestos-containing product, but was exposed to the asbestos via another person who did work directly with the product. So that classic example of the wife laundering her husband's clothes and the clothes have asbestos on them and she um, comes into contact with the asbestos that way. Um, the secondary exposure is a direct exposure, but it's not through their own occupation, if you'll say. So the classic example there is that someone who changes their own brakes, um, which may contain asbestos, but that's not the industry that they're necessarily um, working in for the non-occupational exposure, that is. Um, so when we're looking at the female population, the, the incidence or the percent of the population of women being diagnosed with mesothelioma has rel remained relatively constant over the last 30 years. So this is actually looking at the um, Sears data of how many women are diagnosed each year with mesothelioma, um, and it's been very constant. So approximately 66% of the women diagnosed with mesothelioma in 2011 have since filed a claim so actually filed an asbestos-related claim. And then uh, we can already observe that 85% of the women diagnosed with mesothelioma in 2015 have filed a claim. So again, the total number of women being diagnosed in 2011 and 2015 are about the same, but the percent of those women who um, have filed the claim are uh, higher. We call that the propensity to sue. Um, so for those same diagnosis years, 2011 and 2015, if you compare that to the men who were diagnosed who subsequently then filed a claim, they actually decreased. So 78% of the men who were diagnosed with mesothelioma in 2011 have filed a claim for our data, and uh, only 69% from 2015 have filed a claim. So it's definitely changing a bit um, over the years. Definitely. What What is interesting to me, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now, and um, when I first started working on asbestos cases, you know, we would review the complaints and for coverage, and, you know, the allegations were always kind of similar. You know, I worked as a boiler repair person for 10 years, and I remember changing boilers, valves, gaskets, whatever. 
Um, or I was a mechanic for 20 years and I remember brakes and clutches being in, in the shop. And now they're starting to morph more into my husband worked at a plant and I laundered his clothes twice a day for 30 years. Or I watched my dad change his own brake pads in the garage growing up. Um, and those types of um, allegations, you know, really reflect uh, the, the newer wave of plaintiffs that we're seeing. Um, court decisions on take-home exposure cases really fall on foreseeability. Um, and there's, you know, and there's a, a great variance among jurisdictions who have tackled this. Um, some courts find that the employer had a duty to a spouse because of the dangers of post-1975 exposure was foreseeable. And then other, other courts, of course, you know, disagree and come out differently. There are a couple states that have actually codified the issue, Ohio being one of them. But one decision that I think if you're really interested in a, a nice account of the foreseeability analysis is the Supreme Court of California's 2016 decision in Kessner versus Superior Court. This case is of particular interest because um, it really discusses policy arguments that were advanced by, quote unquote, those defendants that had purchased suitable coverage. Um, and those policy arguments are interesting to me because they kind of lend themselves to some of the issues that I'm going to highlight um, that I see going forward from a coverage basis. Um, they argued, for example, that you know allowing tort liability for take-home exposure would dramatically increase the volume of asbestos litigation, create enormous costs for courts and community, and the already elephantine mass of asbestos cases would further expand. Uh, but importantly, they asserted that such cases would involve inherently tricky fact-finding against a backdrop of fading memories, reorganized and successor corporations, lost records, and an evolving regulatory standards um, informing the particular duty in any given case. Uh, and all of those, I think, highlight what could uh, turn into um, some coverage obstacles for policyholders. And that really is as insurers push for increased documentation and medical evidence to support funding settlements, um, it's going to push against the more remote space and time that plaintiffs are growing from the initial exposure. Don't forget to trigger coverage. We have to show bodily injury during the policy period. We rely on exposure information among other information to do that. And the further we get from that data, the more difficult it's going to be to um, establish our, our rights to coverage. And also, I think it's going to trigger disputes between um, both policyholders and insurers, or even between primary and umbrella and excess insurers, as to the reasonableness of settlements. Um, this is particularly true with, with respect to excess and umbrella insurers who may not be actively involved in the defense and settlement of underlying cases or to whom a policyholder's defense is being transferred as a result of exhaustion or otherwise. So I think this is something to watch. It's important and it's something that we're going to have to keep our thumb on. 
So that's it for the changing look of plaintiffs. We have one more installment in this series on asbestos, which we will discuss the changes in the medical evidence. And Elizabeth is going to present her crystal ball analysis. So if you have any questions, you can always reach me at jjohnson at browsemcdowell.com. And Elizabeth, why don't you give out your emails in case anybody has any questions for you? Uh, yes, it's Hanky, H-A-N-K-E, and then another E for Elizabeth at kcic.com. All right. Thanks, everyone.